0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you speak to us through your word, and we pray, Lord, that this morning you would give us hearts that are ready to be transformed as we hear what you have to say to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to come with me in your imaginations to. The evening commute. It's on uh, the way home on the train from the city. Uh, there's a lady who's had a busy day at the office and she sits there um, on the train looking out the window. She picks up her phone and she thinks, I'll just I'll just check my emails, I'll just refresh my emails one more time. She clicks the refresh button and an email from a colleague pops in and she opens it up and she starts to read. And as she's reading it, she reads this, "'You were way out of line in our meeting today "'when you criticised my proposal. "'We had an agreement. "'I would back your project if you backed mine.'" As she reads it, her blood boils. There was no agreement. And of course she would speak out against the flawed parts of the project And her anger starts to grow and so she starts composing a fiery reply. The phone rings. She answers it and it's her mum just calling for a chat. And soon she's forgotten all about the email. The next day um, she finds it there in her uh, draft box and she deletes it. Glad I didn't send that one. The following night she retells the story uh, in her church small group. And she says this, she says, you know, my mum's call came just when I was tempted to unleash with both barrels. God really does provide a way out when you're tempted. And the other group members, they nod and, hmm, yeah, yeah, you're right, in agreement. But there's one member of the group, uh, as she retells her story, who's sitting there thinking, I'm not so sure about that. He wouldn't say anything out loud, of course, but this guy's a little bit unconvinced by what he hears. See, for six months now, he's been slipping out and he's been putting money through the pokies, feeding hundreds of dollars um, each day. And his habit has become so bad that he started to um, take money from the till at work to feed his habit. Every morning he wakes up With new resolve, every morning he prays that that God would help him resist, but almost every day he can't help but succumb to the magnetism of the pokies. So he sits there, he hears her story, and he thinks to himself, so much for a way out of temptation. Now it's the second last week of our Tricky Text series that we've been working through over these holidays. And the tricky text that we're looking at today comes uh, right towards the end of our Bible reading there from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10. Uh, It's verse 13. Let me read it for you again. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now for, th- for some, uh, this text brings great comfort in temptation or at the prospect of temptation. It's, it's a wonderful promise of God as they understand it, that he will enable our escape when we're enticed to sin. He will give us uh, our escape. But then for others of us, well this passage just doesn't seem to match with our experience. Uh, In our struggle against sin, we succumb and we succumb again. Some temptations, they they just continue to defeat us. Now, for most of us, our experience is probably a bit of a mixture between the two, maybe ping-ponging from one to the other. But what I want us to see today as we wrestle with this tricky text is that this text was never designed to be a promise that God would, provide, uh, would always provide some instantaneous way out in our moment of immediate temptation. You know, that, that, that phone call that cuts you off in your anger or perhaps the, the, the um, supernatural sugar hit of willpower Uh, that enables you to say no uh, in that moment when you're tempted. Nor, actually, is this text a promise that in this earthly life you will overcome every besetting sin uh, that you wrestle with. Uh, No, the ongoing struggle with sin, it's always going to continue in this earthly life until that day when we are made perfect in Christ, until the Lord returns or we go to him in glory. Rather, what I want us to see this morning is that this text's promise to us is that whatever you go through, he has provided a way for you to remain, faith, remain a faithful follower of him. Whatever it is that you go through, he has provided a way for you in the long term to remain faithful to him, to keep you secure. As one of his. So, let's get into the passage. Um, be good if you could have your Bibles open there. If you don't um, have the Bible in front of you, there are a few out there in the foyer. But good to have it um, open in front of you. Um, now, our text comes to us towards the end of a three chapter section of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul is urging the Corinthians um, to have nothing to do with idolatry. Right, three chapters of warning against idolatry. Chapter eight. Um, Where Paul begins this, uh, he begins with the phrase, now about food sacrificed to idols. And then on he goes a couple of chapters and it reaches the climax there in verse 14, the final verse of our passage, where he simply says, flee from idolatry. You see, in ancient Corinth, idol worship was virtually everywhere. Towering over the ancient city of Corinth uh, 600 metres above the city was the Acro-Corinth and on the Acro-Corinth was the temple to A- Aphrodite, uh, the ancient goddess, um, Greek goddess of love. And then scattered throughout the city were temples to various other gods as well. Uh, and so there was this, this culture, this, uh, this idol worship was in the air that was breathed. Animals were constantly being sacrificed. There were, there were great feasts um, being held uh, As as part of the worship, orgies, temple prostitution was also part of the worship of these pagan gods, and this was the culture that the members of the Corinthian church had grown up in, and it was the culture that they were still surrounded by. Many Corinthians, they were still members of households that went to these pagan temples to worship, and many of them were still parts members of businesses. Uh, where that's the way people would work, or, or at least they traded with people or who had friends um, who would indulge uh, in pagan worship, and so the pressure to return to this kind of idolatry was immense. Uh, there, there was uh, not just the the temptation of the sensual pleasures, uh, the sex and the feasting, um, there was also uh, that temptation or that pressure, because of the fear of social isolation. If you're not taking part in this thing that everyone else is involved in, there's a threat of being isolated, of being um, cut off. And so Paul dedicates this large chunk of his letter, these three chapters, to warning them against the dangers of returning to such idolatry. Now idolatry, you see, idolatry is the devil's end goal as he... as as he seeks to tempt people away from God. See, throughout the Bible, what we see is that God's design for us and his desire for us is that we would love him above all things, that he would be the one on whom we set our affections and that he would be the one who we ultimately obey. But idolatry is when this love above all things gets misdirected towards something else. It's when we set our affections uh, and, and we go to for our obedience on created things rather than the creator. And this has catastrophic consequences for us because what we are doing as we do that is we're ignoring God's design for us. In the same way that ignoring the manufacturer's design for a car and you know, pouring water into the fuel tank has catastrophic consequences for that car, so does ignoring God's design for us have catastrophic consequences for us. Idolatry is life and death serious. It's eternal life and death serious. And this is the case even for God's chosen people, both the Israelites back there in the Old Testament and Christians under the New Covenant today just because God has chosen us doesn't mean that we somehow have some kind of an immunity from idolatry and that we don't have to take care in being tempted to idolatry. Now it's all of this, the seriousness and the fact that God's people are not immune that Paul drives home in our passage by referring to the experiences of the Israelites um, in our passage Uh, In verses 1 to 4, Paul reminds us of the fact that it was God who formed them as a nation. He was the one who handpicked them. He brought them out of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea. He provided food and drink and sustenance for them in the wilderness. And yet, many of them still turned away from him and set their desires elsewhere. When Moses was a long time coming down Mount Sinai, they created a golden calf, bowing down to it, sacrificing to it, having a huge party in worship. Now that's the incident that verse 7 refers to in our passage. Uh, Then later on, the incident that verse 8 refers to in our passage, in their wilderness wanderings, the Israelite men went and slept with the Moabite women. And this This wasn't just an instance of of sexual immorality. It was an instance of idolatry as well. Why is that? Well, if you go back and read Numbers 25, you'll see that the Moabite women had invited the Israelite men to a sacrificial feast with the gods of Moab. And then there's the time um, that verse 9 refers to as testing Christ. We'll see later on why Paul used that phrase time when the Israelites, they grumbled, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now again, this is a moment on the path to idolatry as people have turned away from obeying God and from trusting his provision of food and drink. And then verse 10 refers more generally to Israel's grumblings which were almost continual. From the moment they left Egypt. Again, this is an expression of disobedience and distrust, a step on that path to idolatry. And to show how serious this idolatry is, for each of them, Paul points out the severity of God's punishment 23,000 killed on one day, killed by snakes, killed by the destroying angel so the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians, the point that he is highlighting and bolding and double underlining, is don't you risk it. There is nothing more calamitous in your life and for your eternity than idolatry. And just because you are part of God's people, it doesn't mean that it won't happen to you. Twice, he says in verse 6 and verse 11, all these things happen to the Israelites as examples to us. The Corinthians, in fact, all New Covenant believers, including you and me here today, we're meant to learn from Israel's experience. We're meant to see the seriousness of idolatry and we're meant to take heed. As verse 12 says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Keep watch lest you fall into idolatry. You turn away from the living God and you live and you love other created things. There was a man, a physics professor, who as he climbed the ladder of the physics academy uh, and became attracted to that world of professional academia and all that he had to offer, it had to offer rather, as he did that he slowly turned his back on Christ. There was a footballer, a man who once thanked God whenever he received a Man of the Match award who then became intoxicated on celebrity and money and beautiful women. Christ was his God no longer. There was a lawyer, newly graduated, who became so drawn into the life of the law firm, even a law firm that did very good work, that she gradually found that she no longer had time for Jesus and his people. Three true stories of people who sat in churches just like you are doing this morning and one temptation at a time slowly drifted until that ultimate temptation caught hold of them and they fell to idolatry. They no longer loved and worshipped the God who had created them. In each case, they didn't take heed to verse 12's warnings. They weren't careful and they fell. And so the question is well, how do we avoid taking that same deadly path? How do we avoid taking that path? Um, what is God's way out? Well, this is where our tricky text comes in, where we hear about God's way out. Let's have a look um, at what verse 13 says again. It says. Uh, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. So verse 13 first uh, shows us that the temptation that the Corinthians are experiencing, which we now know from the context is the temptation to idolatry It first shows us that that temptation is common to mankind. That was part of the point of showing those examples of the Israelites, that even God's chosen people uh, experience this temptation. But then secondly, verse 13 then points us to God uh, in this experience of temptation. It says, he is faithful. That's what verse thirteen says. As in God is faithful to his people, the people he has chosen and saved. Which means then that our battle against temptation and idolatry, it's it's not one that God leaves us to fight on our own, you know, through the sheer strength of our willpower. No, because he is faithful to us, he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will provide a way out. If we follow God's way that he has provided for us, we will never fall to idolatry. Uh, This is not, uh, by the way, two separate promises. He he doesn't uh, promise, you know, promise number one, I will limit kind of uh, your temptation and then promise number two, I will provide a way out. Rather, what God's saying here is uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, We are not tempted beyond what we can bear because God provides a way out and and vice versa. So what is this way out that God provides? Well, um, plenty of people have speculated about what this um, way might be but I reckon if you look at the context of this passage, I'm pretty convinced that the way out is Christ himself. It's the Gospel. That's the way out that God provides. So if you turn to Christ in your temptation and in your sin, if you entrust yourself to him more fully, if you experience afresh the forgiveness that he offers and and, and his strengthening that he gives, well then you are able to stand firm and ultimately you will not succumb to idolatry. See, I think this is the point that Paul is making back in verse 5 when he talks about the spiritual rock that the Corinthians, uh, sorry, that the Israelites drank from, and he says that that spiritual rock was Christ. Bit of a odd thing to say. You think, well, why is it that Paul made that point? Well, it's because he's saying that God's provision from uh, of water from that rock to refresh and strengthen the Israelites. That's a picture of the way that Christ spiritually refreshes and strengthens us today as we drink from Him. There's a similar thing then going on in verse 9 when um, Paul writes about those who were killed by snakes as testing Christ. Right, they tested Christ in that they grumbled against God's provision for them. So while there were, while there were some Israelites who committed idolatry and sexual immorality and grumbled, um, there were also many others who didn't. And did you notice that repetition through verses seven to eleven of some of them, some of them, some of them? It's four times, as in it was only it was some of them who did it, but yes, there was a whole lot who didn't. Um, there were those who didn't succumb to idolatry. There were those who trusted God's provision. They took God's way out. For us today, then, taking this way out means a life of continual turning to Christ. A life of continual turning to Christ. And there was a minister um, in Scotland in the 1800s, a man by the name of Robert Murray McShane. Who's, who's heard his name before? Yeah, there's a few of you their you, hands up. No doubt, I mean, the, the reason why most of us who have heard his name, I'll be interested to, to um, hear from you um, afterwards, the reason most of us have heard his name, if we have heard his name, is because he's famous for producing this this year-long Bible reading plan, right, which takes you through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice and the Psalms twice. Great uh, Bible reading plan if you want to get into doing that. But back in his day, if you knew the name Robert Murray McShane, the reason why you knew it was because he was famous for his holiness. He was famous as a man of deep godliness of character. He wasn't perfect, of course, but here was a man who knew how to take God's way out when tempted and after having sinned. But here's the thing. There's actually a direct causal link between those two that McShane actually talks about himself. Um, Between mornings spent in Bible reading and prayer and between his ability to withstand temptation, his his life of holiness. For it's in the Bible that we drink from Christ. And it's it's in the Bible that having drunk from Christ and, and meditating on the Bible and coming to Christ that we can train ourselves to stand against the temptations that lead ultimately to idolatry. And listen to what McShane said himself about his his strategy for fleeing sin and pursuing holiness. He said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Lovely flowery language there, isn't it? And it was his time that he spent each morning in God's word and in prayer that allowed him to do that, that allowed him to take those ten looks at Christ because it was starting his day like that that helped him to constantly cultivate that habit of turning to Christ and, and resting him th- in him throughout the rest of the day. He wrote this. He wrote He did not think of his mornings, his um, mornings in the Bible and praying, as laying up a stock of grace for the rest of the day, but rather with a view of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day and drawing down gleams from the reconciled countenance. Now, what's he saying there? In other words, what he's saying is the time that he spent morning by morning in God's word and prayer and meditation, it wasn't just a booster shot, you know, kind of give him a little bit of energy. No, it was a training session. It was a rehearsal for then what he would do as he went out into the day. It was training him to continue to be looking upwards, to be looking to Christ right throughout his day. Now here was a man who drank deeply from that rock, that rock who is Christ. And so it was enabled and strengthened to overcome when sin and temptation came his way. A man like that is not going to be a man who falls into idolatry. I want to conclude then by returning to that story uh, that I began with, that night uh, in small group. For both the commuter and the pokey addict... They had understood this text to mean that God would provide some kind of instantaneous intervention just at that precise moment of temptation to sin. Kind of like, like a James Bond movie where the helicopter flies by with the rope ladder hanging down just at that moment when the baddies are pursuing him off a cliff. And then when such a moment did happened for the commuter, uh, that way of understanding this passage, it seemed to ring true, didn't it? But can you imagine how the, again, how the pokey addict felt in that moment? When that uh, promise of God's intervention, when he realised at that moment that that promise of God's intervention didn't ring true for him. We can imagine his doubt, can't you? Is this really true? Is God really loving is God even real? Maybe I'm not even saved. You can imagine his doubt. And the thing is, God may send such interventions, but it is not the point of this passage that he promises to send such interventions. Rather, what this promises is that through God's ordinary means of grace, through turning to his word and through drinking from that rock, which is Christ, God provides the way out. That's what this passage is calling on the commuter and the pokey addict and you and me here this morning to cultivate. For it's in that constant turning to Christ and drinking from the rock through things like Bible reading and reflection and repentance and prayer that we are refreshed and strengthened. Though in this uh, earthly life, our day-to-day struggle against sin and temptation will always be present, we have God's guarantee here that he will always be faithful and keep us to the end if only we would take the way that he has provided. God may not send that helicopter with the rope ladder but he has given us the strength to strengthen ourselves so that we can climb down the cliff and escape. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do praise you for the gospel. We praise you for sending Christ uh, that in him... Our sin is dealt with and so in him as we struggle with sin and temptations we can be strengthened and refreshed in knowing that we are forgiven and in gaining strength from him to overcome. Lord, we thank you that if we take this way out you will keep us faithful to yourself and that we will not fall to idolatry. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.